Michelle Rackham Hall is a postdoctoral fellow at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. She's presently working on a catalogue raisonne of the poet artist P.K. Page Irwin's works of art, part of the collected works of P.K. Page, an editing modernism in Canada project. The catalogue will include a print volume of Page Irwin's work to be published by Porcupine's Quill, as well as a digital archive of the artist's paintings, drawings, etchings, and other works. You've recently completed a PhD from McGill University, and the title of that dissertation is... Between the Lines, Interartistic Modernism in Canada, 1930 to 1960. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, specifically what we're interested in is the work that you've done on uh, Betty Sutherland, who was Irving Layton's wife, but more importantly, was the designer of many of the books and dust jackets uh, for the contact press during the 1950s. That's correct. Before we get into that, though, perhaps we could talk a bit about the evolution of book design in Canada, dating back to the the early part of the 20th century. Okay. Early on in the century, there's it's it's a quite different aesthetic that artists and book designers are going for. So um, there are a few designers that are sort of working with presses that are doing sort of an Art Nouveau look, basically creating borders and ornamentation for poems and, um, and other uh, publications. And that sort of Art Nouveau style really kind of persists throughout mm. the early 20th century. Just incidentally, uh, there was uh, there was a a few publishing houses in the States mm-hmm. that were quite uh, keen on the arts and crafts movement. I'm thinking exactly. of Copeland and Day. And so yeah, the William Morris spurs this across the globe. It really influences book design globally. In Canada, is unfortunately kind of mimicking what's happening in the States and in Britain at this point in time. So mm-hmm. absolutely that's what they're after, is that sort of handcrafted book look. Not necessarily handcrafted, but the look that yeah. it was, right? And then in the 1920s or thereabouts, um, you start getting this real push just after the war, 1918, to create books that are Canadian or Canadian looking or that emblematize Canada. And so a number of publishers start hiring some of the group of seven members, J.E.H. MacDonald being the big one that that did most of the work um, to design some of these books that they're publishing. I think J.E.H. MacDonald designed one of Bliss Carmen's books, Ballads and Lyrics, in 1923, and it's sort of the same style, like the idea that you have this Art Nouveau aesthetic with lots of like borders of leafy, sort of nature-y motifs. Post-1918, they're including very specific flowers or leaves that would represent Canada, like the trillium, for example, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more tailored to the country, and that's what they're after. And Lauren Harris, I think, did Lauren Harris a few did some, important books. Right? C.F. Jeff, C.W. Jeffries, I should say, um, not Group of Seven, but he was another famous designer. But they're all sort of working with the same aesthetic, nothing too radically different at this point. Uh, and then Thoreau McDonald, who is J.E.H. McDonald's son, he also joins in and starts doing some of this work as well. Up until the 1940s, you'll see some of his woodcuts adorning books of poems. Uh, the one that pops into my mind is Earl Burney's David. And other poems 
which was, I think, early 1940s. And if you look in the title page or maybe one of the end papers, just around the front, you'll, you'll see a little woodcut of a mountain, which, of course, is supposed to sort of speak to the poem, David, which is about two men that go on this treacherous mountain journey. Sort of this, I would say, more ornamentation than really, like, illustration of poems. Although they did work on the end papers, right? They do work on the end papers for sure, um, which is something that dies off around the Depression a little bit because obviously there's not a lot of money in here. So book design has a bit of a lull during that period. Randall Speller writes about this in his article in the History of the Book in Canada. He notes that during the Depression, a lot of publishers would recycle illustrations, would recycle you know, ornamentations for their books and poems or for their novels or whatever they're publishing because it's just too expensive to do this kind of work at this point in time. It gets revived in the 1940s, but barely, let's say, until the late 1940s when things start to kick off. So why do they start to kick off and how? Okay, well, there are probably a number of different reasons why. What does seem to happen is there are greater communities of artists and poets working together. Mm. Um, And so there's more collaboration happening between them. The war unites artists, certainly, in the sense of they're trying to find a role for themselves in the war that's not a violent role or that's not, you know, a battle role. Mm. Um, And so often they're creating posters, they're writing poems or um, essays that speak to people about the war, doing war work on the home front in an artistic sort of way. But then after the war, this is when this sea change occurs. Absolutely. And that's because... Well, now now there's more money <laughs> available to, to artists in Canada. They have been collaborating throughout the war on different projects, and many of the poets and artists collaborated on the little magazine specifically. There are two little magazines in particular that really sort of, I think, change things in terms of design. Northern Review, which was edited by John Sutherland. It's an amalgamation of a previous little magazine called Preview, which was edited by Patrick Anderson, F.R. Scott, A.M. Klein, P.K. Page, a group of well-known poets. Uh, And then First Statement, which was edited by John Sutherland, but also Louis Dudek and Irving Layton, and also other members, including Betty Sutherland. So these two magazines decide, for a number of reasons, and I won't go into it here, they decide to amalgamate in 1945, and they create this uh, Northern Review, which is unlike the other magazines before it, because what they've decided to do um, is basically publish reproductions of modern, modernist visual art. So they've been able to obtain plates from Canadian art, and include them in their publication. Canadian Art Magazine? Yes, Canadian okay. Art Magazine. Right. And also create reproductions of works that they that they wanted to have just on their own, you know, funding permitted. So now you've got these wonderful works of visual art right next to poems that are right. modernist and aesthetic that suit the poems because they're a little bit more experimental than the traditional poems that are that trade publishers are publishing at the time because they're in little magazines right so yeah. they have uh, it's one of their only outlets right exactly and, yeah. and they're editing their own works <laughs> so i think that's a bit of a game changer and uh, also the the poets were often the ones that were writing little articles about the artists in the magazine as well so that's you know obviously the poets are paying attention to the visual art and i would assume that the artists are, are reading some of the stuff if their works are in these little magazines so there's sort mm, of a okay. little collaboration going on there does that translate 
into the way that particular uh, magazine was designed or not yet? I would say not. I don't think it really affects the design of a magazine so much because if you look at it, the way that the paintings are reproduced, they're just basically on a single page. Okay. They're not really interacting with the text in any interesting way. Okay. But the fact that those modernist works are there is something that just hasn't really been able to happen before. Then not long after that, and I think 1947, uh, you get the first issue of another little magazine called Here and Now. Now this magazine, in terms of design, was quite impressive um, for a little magazine, that is. Not necessarily for a book, but for a, mag a little magazine it was. Earl Burney and E.J. Pratt and others commented on the aesthetics of the little magazine, how impressive it was. Mm -hmm. It was incredibly expensive to produce. To the point where they couldn't afford to, to make, you know, to produce or publish that many of them, right? Correct, right. They only had four issues of that little magazine, which is not very many. Not that little magazines usually have a long shelf life, but that's certainly not very many issues. Okay. But obviously the design was important to them because within the magazine itself, the content often speaks about book design and design in general in terms of poetry. The Northern Review was out of Montreal? Correct. And this one's out of Toronto? That is right, yes. Okay. Yeah. Here and Now magazine, which was edited by... Catherine Harmon and Paul Arthur. Um, their inaugural issue features an editorial by Harmon and Arthur, which they specifically call on poets and, and artists to design a better bibliographic environment for poetry in Canada, one that speaks better to the poems. And then uh, in issue number three, Paul Arthur has another article called In Silk and Scarlet Walks Many a Harlot, which basically reiterates the same message. Arthur's message, of course, is somewhat, I would say, self-interested because around this time he is creating the designs for the Indian file series that McClellan and Stewart brings out. This is another game changer in terms of yeah. designing in Canada for, for poetry books. It's well known as an example of something that is just innovative, has hasn't come out before. And very Canadian because of its exactly. uh, Aboriginal feel. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why it's called the Indian File Series, because the motifs that he uses, which are quite abstract, are based on, uh, I think, Plains uh, and West Coast Native motifs. Now, the thing is, is that there's only four designs in the series, and there are nine books. So the designs don't exactly speak to the poems inside in any way. They're just modern looking because they're abstract. They have an aesthetic that is appealing at the time um, and that is different than what has come before. And the boards are covered in that design, right? Exactly. They're like stiff board covers covered in design. They have a, a slight black margin to the binding I think and that's about it. Mm -hmm. So they're they're quite basic but they're pretty and they're they're just quite striking and very collectible too which is Absolutely. Mention. But yeah, nothing really about interaction between design and text. The text itself I think it was of a pretty high quality because two or three of these books won Governor General's Award. Oh, the poetry inside of them. Yes, mm -hmm. you're right. They're certainly exceptional. Um, one that comes to mind is James Rainey's The Red Heart. I love that book. It's you know fabulous collection of poetry. But mm -hmm. the collection of poems don't necessarily interact in any way with the design. Incidentally, those books are spread out over the course of about 10 years. Oh, right? yeah, that's another point. They're yeah. not coming out all at one. I think it goes until like the end of the 50s. So we have to wait then for, at least in your opinion, Betty Sutherland to, to really meld these two aspects of 
publishing then? Yeah, well, what I think is different about what happens when Betty Sutherland hits the scene is, I guess, up until that point, from about 1918 until 19, let's say, 47, you really do have designers looking to design a Canadian look to their publications. Sutherland isn't interested in that. Now, I should say there is a book that comes out before Sutherland appears or around the same time that does have, I think, a big influence on book design of of poetry in Canada, which is uh, Behind the Log by E.J. Pratt. This was designed by Grant MacDonald, and it's really sort of an anomaly in terms of book design at that point. It was 1947. It comes out, I believe, the same month or around the same time that the first issue of Here and Now comes out. Pratt actually does include a little greeting inside Here and Now. So he knows what's going on in Here and Now. Here and Now knows what's going on, obviously, in Pratt's work as well this time. So there's a lot of connections there. Mm -hmm. But this book, Behind the Log, is very modernist in its aesthetic. The woodblocks... I suppose uh, that they are that uh, Grant McDonald's creates for the book are very modernist. They create these sort of abstract figures and they, they do speak to the text. In uh, They basically narrate the text in mm. a lot of ways. Very striking, aren't they? They are. They're yeah. powerful, mm-hmm. powerful images. Uh, but this is n- an anomaly um, and it's ahead of its time, I would say, probably by 10 years. <laughs> and also, surprisingly uh, accessible, affordable, you can, yeah. you can find this book online and uh, in used antiquarian bookstores and it uh, you know it's not prohibitively expensive i'm not too sure how it was received and maybe mm. that has something to do with the pricing but it's, it seems a little odd to me considering how beautiful the book is that it's not worth more than what it's what it's priced at and also the fact as you say that it's innovative and groundbreaking quite apart from the value of the content Exactly. Yeah. McClellan and Stewart or Ryerson Press or the big name trade publishers, mm. they're not really doing this kind of thing at this point in time. Not until the later 50s. Betty Sutherland and Contact Press, however, begin to sort of take on this kind of search for a modernist aesthetic in their pu- book publications. So Contact Press begins around 1952, and one of the first publications they have is Cerberus, a collection of poems by Leighton, Dudek and Souster, and the cover design is very modernist, abstract. It's actually, I can't even really tell what it's of. It's that abstract, (laughs) but it's this black and white woodcut that Sutherland did for the cover. So quite different than anything that's come before in terms of covers for poetry, with the exception, of course, of Pratt's Behind the Log. And this sort of thing continues throughout the decade. She does a number of um, designs that are very, very strikingly modernist, usually abstract woodcuts and prints for these publications that have a huge impact on the poets because mm-hmm. they often write into the press now requesting that she design their work. You mentioned um, abstract, but uh, reading your dissertation, you make the point that her work shares some of the primitive aspects of the expressionism, that whole movement. Well, basically like the woodcut prints, black and white. And the, the reason I bring that up is yeah. the uh, bull calf. Exactly. Which is a really a, a, it's evocative. It's attention. It's provocative, too. Yeah. <laughs> the book Half and Other Poems, 1956, by Irving Layton, was designed by Betty Sutherland, features this woodblock print of a bull calf, very abstract, simplified form, doused in red. Um, and I think the only thing that's black is its horns. It could be, there might be a tongue in there. Mm-hmm. So that's it. But it embodies sort of what's happening 
in the collection itself. One of the lines in the first poem is describing the viewers that watch the slaughter of the bull calf in the poem, and it says something along the lines that they were watching the bull calf like a ponderous mallet that flicked its bleeding ear and pushed it over on its side stiffly like a block of wood. The cover is basically referencing that block of wood aesthetic by creating a block of wood print. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And also, you know, mirrors the bleeding bull calf. Um, And that motif runs throughout Leighton's poems as well, the idea of blood and destruction, Mm -hmm. death. It's just, it's entrenched with that. And this red and black color scheme. Right. It comes up again in Fiat Lux, which is another poem. The father, um, who's basically warning his son of, you know, not flicking off the lights during the Sabbath. He's described as having lips red, red and full and the beard black. He looks basically like the bull calf. So there's a real interaction, even just in that one simple design. There's no Mm. illustrations in the book, but even in that one simple design on the cover, there's a real interaction between what's going on inside Mm. the book and what's happening on the cover. Why do you think this is so exciting? I, I just really enjoy reading a book that has that kind of attention given to it in terms of the production. And also historically, just that it just hasn't happened before. All of a sudden it comes out. And there's and there's so many reasons why. And I find those reasons interesting. The fact that it's husband and wife is one of them, certainly, right? Betty Sutherland probably knew Leighton's poetry arguably more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. She was reading a lot of his manuscripts. So she was very close to it. She was also an editor um, on some of the other little magazines that they had done, like First Statement. So she was very much involved in, in, in reading and looking through these these works and she loved from what i know she loved doing it she often did this stuff for free <laughs> what other covers the did? cold green element which features on its cover another wood block print of this time of a heart that features i guess a hanging figure in the middle um, which is of course from that poem the cold green element so you have that and then within the book itself you have two illustrations which really interact with the text in interesting ways i'll give you one example there's a wood block print completely in black and white of a priest figure with this shroud over top of it and a figure lying sort of supine below him covered in a shroud and there's some skulls on top and it's right beside the poem death of a construction worker which also features this priest-like figure And what's interesting about the image is that it's sort of suggestive that the priest is responsible for or involved in some way in this man's death, which Leighton's poem also suggests but never explicitly states. So the two are sort of working together to create meaning, basically, and that's what I find really interesting about that one. Giving us another perspective or uh, the reader another possible meaning to sift through and uh, make their own determination. But Especially with these modernist kind of designs, they really sort of get the reader to think and pay closer attention to what's going on because they they challenge sometimes meaning and they also add meaning. Um, And so that's something that really is happening in that particular book. That's exactly what poetry is. Yeah. (laughs) You think of it. Good poetry is ambiguous and does render multiple readings or interpretations. Just that's like my, the art. Yeah, that's my definition of good poetry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think especially so um, the, the modernist poets felt that way. I mean, the idea of modernist difficulty, right? It sort of arises from that. That if, if it's not difficult, 
then it's not really challenging the reader anyway. It's not really going to grab his attention in any way, and so or her attention, I should mm-hmm. say. Let's make this, you know, something that is that takes some effort to mm-hmm. read and makes you think. Make you think, mm-hmm. and and that's what that's where the enjoyment comes, right? It's mm-hmm. from that sort of process, okay. and so I think that images and illustrations really have an important role to play in creating that kind of difficulty and engaging the reader. And so the cold green element is a good example of that. Another great design is the long pea shooter, which features an eye, an ear, and a mouth on the cover in red, linear drawings. It's it's quite beautiful uh, and also has a, a lovely portrait of Leighton on the inside that Betty did. So that would be probably pretty interesting for a collector, I would, I would assume. I love this one, Trio, which is by Gail Turnbull, Phyllis Webb, and Eli Mandel. The cover is abstract expressionist aesthetic. Barnett Newman's The uh, Voids of Fire, except right. different colors. Exactly, like sort of the anti, what they call the anti-Malariche um, abstract expressionism or color field painting, um, which is not really something that Betty Sutherland, like, that's not really in her repertoire. Um, so it seems like she really created this and tailored it to the book. Another thing that's sort of interesting about the history of this book is that there's actually a typographical error. Mandel's name does not have two L's. Narowski, Michael Narowski wrote the, the History of Contact Press. He writes about, he puts a little note below the book and says that it's just a typographical error and that they attempted to correct it. I think they've tried to white it out here as well in this copy. You can kind of see. Yes, in fact, I've seen them online and pretty well all of them have that little proviso that they have tried to white them out. Right. And I think this is actually design error on Sutherland's part. What, what do you mean a design error? Well, I think that perhaps she got carried away a little bit. And let me explain. So if you look at it, each of the names have double L's in them. If you remove that, mm-hmm. there isn't, right? Yeah. Those double L's mirror the vertical thrust of the lines in the piece. Um, also, the terminal letters of each of their names are doubled. If you remove the L in Mendel, it's not there anymore. <laughs> so I think she's trying to create some sort of coherency where there, there wasn't any. But what's interesting about the book as well is that obviously very much coming out of its time and place uh, in Montreal, this aesthetic in painting was just sort of hitting the scene. Um, and also it, it fits with a lot of the energy in the book. The idea of movement is really evoked here. The way that these sort of names of the poets are sort of hovering around this center. I, w- I like to think about it as like a heliotropic center emanating light. <laughs> and if you look inside the book too, let's see if I can find an example. Here's Phyllis Webb's poem, Standing for Earl Burney, which really plays with typography quite a bit, um, with indented lines and thrusting lines, evoking that movement, that sort of energy that is somewhat displayed on the cover. Mm-hmm. The best-selling contact pre- press book was uh, Raymond Souster's Selective Poems, which is another cover that I just love. Striking figure, abstract and prim- primitive, and it's very simple, but it's just gorgeous, and it really fits with the text that's inside so you have a lot of selection <laughs> you can get them they're not common no. but uh, but you can find them anything else on betty sutherland then was this it for her the contact press work that she did she did anything else well that's part of the reason why i don't think she's received a lot of attention is because no she, she didn't do really anything other than her own painting in which in her own right she's a great painter and, and you know obviously went on to do that and she did end up publishing her own book of poems and stories 
um, in the 1980s called The Prodigal Son that features illustrations by her as well. But that's the only example, and of course that's much later, 1982 or 3, I think. I think it's published by Mosaic Press. In 1960, she left Canada and moved to California. She'd separated from Leighton um, right when he was becoming this big star in Canada. And moving on to McClellan and Stewart. After uh, Jonathan Williams in the States, he moves to McClellan and Stewart and leaves contact behind in terms of publishing his own work, at least. You should mention that, that contact was, as much as anything, you, you, might, you don't really want to call it a vanity press, but it was, it was. self-publishing, <laughs> wasn't it, by the, it these nice. three poets, and they started off publishing primarily their own work. Right. Uh, so it starts out a little sketchy, right? I mean, you're publishing your own work. It is mm-hmm. somewhat of a vanity press. Mm-hmm. But that was the only venue that they had. The commercial presses wouldn't touch their stuff with a 10-foot pole because it was way too different than anything that they'd seen before. They didn't understand it, right? Mm -hmm. So it was sort of out of necessity that they did that, and thank goodness they did, or we probably wouldn't have gotten to the point where Leighton could publish wonderful works like The Red Carpet for the Sun. Which was designed by Frank Neufeld and does carry the same uh, color scheme as the the bull calf. Yeah. And that book won the Governor General's Award for poetry. A red carpet that for the sun did, yeah, in '59, yeah. right? When you look at Neufeld's designs, it's hard to not notice a sort of similarity between what he did and what Betty Sutherland did. But as much as they're similar, I, I don't know how much of an influence you can claim. It's likely he saw some of her work, but Leighton's poems often feature those colors and um, that sort of aesthetic in them as well. So how much of it is is him just sort of reacting to the poetry and how much of it is him keeping in line with what had been done before? I don't know. I wouldn't be able to say. The thing about Neufeld is that he actually designed something like 600 books. He is, is one of the great and justifiably celebrated as one of the great Canadian book designers, along with Alan Fleming and, perhaps to a lesser extent, Bill Toy and Mm -hmm. Glenn Galuska. But in the book that Robert Bringhurst wrote about Canadian book design, uh, The Surface of Meaning, some years ago, no mention of Betty Sutherland whatsoever. No, and that's not surprising, really. I mean, I don't think he mentions any small presses in that book. And Contact Press was a small press, so it's not really surprising that he doesn't mention her, but it's unfortunate because he, like, how do we get from what comes before to Frank Neufeld? Mm-hmm. How do we get from, you know, A to B? There's no mention. From Thoreau McDonald to... Yeah, yeah, there's such a jump there, and I think that Betty Sutherland, and, and not just Sutherland, but the other designers of Contact Press, too, you have a lot of visual artists that did stuff for them, like Frieda Goodman designed um, Let Us Compare Mythologies, which isn't exactly Contact Press, but the McGill Poetry Series, which is loosely related, let's say. And uh, Vera Frankel, and you have Peter Daglish, and you have Anita Koop, you know, tons of visual artists that are working on this small press and designing it. These wonderful, wonderful books with illustrations that are quite different than what's coming before with Thoreau MacDonald and some of the other designers that were working in that sort of Art Nouveau vein. Bringhurst is one, but I don't think any of the other people that really write about book design in Canada, um, Randall Speller, for example, I don't think he mentions small presses at all. They're just overlooked. But I think it's important to include contact because they're small press, but they're also sort of a bridge between small and commercial. Well, they are that, and they also, I mean, it's been argued that they uh, set the table for a coach house press, which is a, a really 
important, Super you know, important. Ex experimental early on anyway. Right. And then they did lots of wonderful design Beautiful work. Stuff. Yeah, so they were definitely influential in, in that respect. Mm. Eventually, one of their works does win the Governor General's Award, Margaret Atwood's The Circle Game. So, I mean, it's not like they remain this small entity that doesn't do anything. They lasted for over a decade. Mm -hmm. So that's that's just, you know, saying something. And yeah, certainly they were an inf influential press. So then why aren't we looking at their designs as being influential? But I think it's just sort of this prejudice, not looking at small presses, only only dealing with the trade publishers. Or not looking at women. It could be not looking at women too, but there are male artists that didn't get looked at either, like Peter Deglish. His work isn't talked about. To some degree, it, it possibly was. It was a different time then. I wasn't around, so I don't know what the context is other than from what I've heard. But yeah, mm. certainly women weren't given the props that they deserve, let's say. But you know what? I, I find it hard to believe in some respects, too, because if you look at almost all of the publications that Betty Sutherland did, you know, they mention her. That's true, isn't it? She's and, quite prominent, too. Yeah, mm. and also another interesting note is Irving Layton's The Improved Binoculars, which was published by Jonathan Williams. If you look on one of the first few pages of that book, he has a little note that says, Betty Sutherland designed all my publications that I brought out privately. Not this one. So there's really no reason why he even needs to state it. But he makes it a point to say that she designed every other one, which is really kind of strange. <laughs> that after they get divorced? No. They're still, they're still married. I think it's 1956. So yeah, they're still married. But I think it's just trying to give that acknowledgement where acknowledgement is due. She was a big supporter of his work. And she helped him achieve a lot of things in his career early on. Mm -hmm. So I think that he was trying to pay homage to that. And most of the poets felt that she was important. And the poets that went on to work with designers like Frank Neufeld felt she was important, like Leonard Cohen. It's not as if she wasn't valued at the time. Well, and we should mention, too, that this field is completely under... Understudied. <laughs> studied, underappreciated. <laughs> because the, aside from Bringhurst and uh, Nikki uh, Drumbolis mm -hmm. and, a, and a few Speller, others, yeah. they're a speller, not a lot of work. Yeah. Not a lot, a um, yeah. few articles here and there, but yeah, definitely not mm -hmm. perhaps the attention that it deserves. And it's certainly the years between like 1940 to 1960, there's a huge gap in, in our knowledge that I'm trying to fill mm -hmm. in some of the work that I do. But certainly people that have a background in book history would probably be better suited to discuss it because I deal with art and poetry specifically. So I'm interested in the connections through text and image. Great. Well, there's a, a wide open field for <laughs> <Yeah>. someone. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to leave us with based on what you've come up with as it pertains to book design and Betty Sutherland? Just just to terminate, I think that she is an important figure that's underappreciated and that, you know, deserves more attention. It's unfortunate that she has been neglected. The reasons are varied. I don't necessarily think they're warranted. <laughs> the fact that she separated from Leighton is one of them. And left and, the country. And, left the country. Yeah. and I think that's a big reason. It's like she's not Canadian enough anymore, so she's not one of us. But I don't think that that should be a reason to not consider the work that she did because I think it's important and I did I do think it has some sort of relationship to what comes after with um, what McClellan and Stewart was doing with um, their design and poetry series. Thanks for sharing your findings with us. You're welcome. And it was a pleasure. Best of luck in your future academic career. Thank you. I've been speaking with Michelle Rackham, great 
book name, by the way, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> who has recently completed a PhD in poetry. Canadian poetry. Yeah, but I study visual art and poetry. And will be uh, teaching a course in... It's all actually called Canadian Literature, Poetry, and the Image, so... There you go. <laughs> okay, great. At Trent University. So sign up while you can. Please do. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you.